Hello and welcome to the second podcast in the DAC Beechcroft series, White Paper, White Light. In this series, we're seeking to illuminate issues within the white paper and refract that white light through a rainbow spectrum of opinions. My name's Mike Fell and I'm chairman of Two London Trusts, Croydon Health Services and Barton Haven and Redbridge Hospitals. Today's podcast is focused upon provider collaboratives and I'm joined by two trust chairmen and a senior partner from Beechcroft's. Anne, welcome. Can I ask you to introduce yourself, please? Thanks, Mike. Uh, my name's Anne Beasley. I'm chair of the Southwest London and St George's Mental Health Trust. I'm also vice chair of St George's Acute Trust. Thank you. And Peter? Hello, I'm Peter Molyneux, and I chair Sussex Partnership NHS Foundation Trust, which is a mental health and learning disability provider. Thank you. And Hamza? Hi, Mike. Hi, everyone. Uh, Hamza Drabu, commercial partner at DAC Beechcroft and a big focus on integration projects. Thank you. Provider collaboratives aren't new, but the white paper does put a sharp focus on provider collaboratives as a vehicle for both delivering back office efficiencies, but also, more importantly, for driving service transformation. My two trusts sit in very different ICS systems, with Croydon part of Southwest London, where we have an acute provider collaborative which predates the ICS by at least a decade and includes a large range of pooled services from pathology to an elective orthopaedic centre. We're using it as a key vehicle for planning elective recovery across all of the trusts in southwest London. In northeast London, the system's probably less progressed, but we are developing ambitious plans to move forward at pace. I'm really keen to hear from my colleagues on their different experiences. First, can I go to you, Anne, and your trust I know is part of the South London Partnership, which spans two ICS systems. Could you tell us a little bit about how far you've got in your collaboration? Yes, indeed, Mike. So, as you say, the South London Partnership crosses the South West London and the South East London integrated care systems, and it embraces the three mental health trusts uh, across those two ICSs, so ourselves, Oxleys and South London and Maudsley. We've been working uh, collaboratively across the three trusts for a number of years. Actually, it started when Peter was my predecessor, where we developed new models of care around forensics and around uh, CAMS tier four services. And these have evolved and we were invited to become fast track provider collaboratives for those two services. Additionally, we have gone for fast track for a adult eating disorder provider collaborative, and they've worked incredibly well, actually. The key to them has been clinical leadership. The clinicians have got together and they have really transformed some of those services. If I give you an example, one of the scandals previously amongst children with severe mental illness was the distance that they were placed when they were inpatients from home. And over the years, we have managed to reduce that from an average of 73 miles to an average of seven miles, which is clearly much better in terms of um, maintaining social contact and all the things that are important in young people's lives. So we've gone live, it's kind of early days. It went live last year, but so far it has been going um, very well. And thank you for that. And it's really good to hear that this that collaboration isn't just about driving efficiencies, but actually it's about real service improvements and delivering for patients. Uh, Peter, you're, you're, you're now 
in a non-metropolitan area? I wonder what your experiences are in Sussex. I mean, you know, similarly with Anne, you know, the, the key issue for mental health trusts and, and hence for people seriously affected by mental illness is working out at what scale and what geographies is it appropriate to provide um, services. So we are involved in a number of collaboratives. We're involved um, since about 2016. We've been involved in the new models of care program, you know, where we've been sort of looking at CAMS tier four provider collaboratives. And we've been looking at a secure care provider collaborative across a number of ICSs and, and with a number of trusts. But also within the health and care partnership in Sussex, we have a mental health provider collaborative that covers the ICS for Sussex. And the focus there is very much on reducing inequalities and very much on trying to improve outcomes for patients. You know, similarly with many other areas, you know, Men in contact with mental health services have a life expectancy 20 years less than the general population. Women in contact with mental health services live on average 15 years less. And, you know, the inequality gap widens as you go up the age range. You know, people age 65 are like to around 50, 60 percent of the remaining life expectancy um, compared to the population as a whole. So there are some really serious health inequalities issues to be addressed there. And I think that by working across the whole of the ICS, we are able to bring together the right partners to really think about how we make a meaningful difference to those sorts of inequalities. And I think that sometimes it's important to remember that integration in the context of mental health is slightly different than it might be in terms of some of the other health conditions. And so we need housing in the room. We need employment services in the room and in order to really sort of think about how do we get to some of those inequalities. If I think of some examples, I think that you know the other obvious one is trying to reduce the number of people who are being sent out of area. It's absolutely right that people should expect to be treated within their own communities and not have to travel large distances to receive care. And I think another really good example, particularly over the last year, has been the work we've done with some of our homeless population and our rough sleeping population in terms of trying to make sure one, they have better services, but also better mental health outcomes. Peter, thank you for that. I think it illustrates that the point about broader partnerships being really, really essential in terms of mental health patients, but actually more generally in terms of the broader health inequalities agenda and the, the need to address the wider determinants of health. So. I'm going to ask Hamza to come in now because the risk with the emphasis on provider collaboratives is the NHS may return to form um, and spend most of its time obsessing over our structures and governance arrangements. Hamza, you've worked across the country on a whole range of partnerships and collaborations. How do you ensure that the structures and the governance forms that we put in place actually act as enablers to collaboration? rather than an end in themselves. Thanks, Mike. Um, you're talking to a man that likes to obsess over, over governance and, uh, and form. <laughs> but one thing that I would say is that form obviously must follow the, the, um, the, the function. You, you have to be in a situation where you're working from the objective of the partners that are involved and putting in arrangements that are easy to engage with. So one of the 
key risk areas, I think, whenever you're looking at, at partnership arrangements. And it was interesting to hear about the new models of care um, arrangements in mental health. And, and we've certainly worked on, on a number of those where commissioners are delegating budgets to providers for providers then to work collaboratively and, and help organize certain, certain aspects of, of, of mental health provision. It's really key to work out what's actually in scope uh, and, and actually being quite explicit about what, what's not in scope. Um, and, and also considering the, the scale of, of the arrangements and perhaps phasing in because it's really important not to work really hard to, to, on, on, on pieces of paper that, that actually should largely be put in a drawer where the relationships are, are really key. What you need is, is clarity and an approach that allows you to iterate because I think with all of these collaborations and particularly with, with all of the, the ongoing change in, in the NHS and, and different pressures that might arise, you need to be able to also be nimble with these matters. I think the difficulty often from a legal perspective it is it, it can end up quite transactional. So we've seen quite a range of different forms. We've seen everything from an MOU right the way through to full trust mergers and all aspects in between, whether alliance arrangements or, or Section 75 arrangements with local authorities, etc. The key is is around clarity and, and building that trust and iterating. So I think that those are, are real enablers to collaboration. Expressing any incentives and making sure that they align through contractual and financial structures, of course, that, that's a given. But I think building uh, slowly and, and being able to iterate are really important features of any governance arrangement. Thanks, Hamza. And I think that point of using governance to actually reinforce relationships and trust is a really, really important one. Clearly, collaboration takes a different approach from people and the culture that we may have got used to in the NHS of competing organisations is one that we need to be putting behind this. I wonder, Peter, you've got a long experience in a whole range of different sectors, and I want to get a, a sense from you about how we can manage the inevitable conflicts between partners. Yes, I mean, collaboration is an interesting word, isn't it? It, it, it has a double meaning so often that we reward people for collaboration, but we also condemn them for collaboration in other settings. And I think there is a leadership challenge around how we encourage people to think about operating more collaboratively. And so I think there's, a, if you like, there's the need to think about different styles of leadership that are required to bring um, people together and to recognize that we're trying to redesign the pathway with the best forms of provision along that pathway that deliver the better outcomes for the patients. I think that there have been lots of conversations, certainly within our collaboratives, about the extent to which you can or you can't delegate commissioning to the collaborative. And I think that's still a work in progress in some ways. But I think that it's important to make sure that there are really good principles established for how you decide um, how decisions get made about who provides what um, in the individual pathways. I think that there needs to be some, obviously there needs to be openness and transparency around that, and there needs to be a way in which that can then be checked and tested. And there need to be clear points in the process when other providers who may wish to bring an offer to the, the collaborative know how they can do that. And I think that takes a little bit of working through. And there is a risk, I think, as there often is, if you're not careful, you create a bit of a superstructure around this. So it is about trying to keep it as lean as possible. 
But certainly, I think so far, we're finding that actually by making sure that things are as open and transparent as possible, and you're really talking through what the possible contribution is at different points of the pathway, that seems to be a way of really focusing on what's going to deliver the best outcome for the patient, what's going to be the best use of available resource, and actually coming together to tackle some of the bigger wicked issues. And I mean, the out-of-area placement is obviously the obvious one in mental health, where actually if you keep your clarity around that's your overall goal, then actually working out how best to bring those people back together seems to work quite well. Thank you, Peter. Um, and I think that that point about values and behaviours is a really important one to bear in mind. And it's one where I know a number of partnerships have spent quite a bit of time thinking through what are the values and behaviours that will underpin their working together. And was there much work around that within the South London Partnership as, as you began working together? So I wasn't there in the early days. In fact, Peter was there when we were setting up the new models of care across our forensic services and our CAM services. But I think actually we've really benefited from the fact that we started with three chairs and three chief executives who were united by a common shared purpose of improving outcomes for patients. So we started quite informally and built the relationships and we've had to hang on to those relationships, albeit there have been a number of changes of personnel as we've gone in the last year into slightly more rigorous um, governance. So we've created a committees in common structure to oversee our provider collaboratives because when you have significant sums of money, one needs to have probably a bit more governance in there than when you're starting by trying to create common pathways and common standards. So it's not been wholly without its issues. It's interesting that of the three provider collaboratives that we run, the one that's been slightly more tricky but is still working well is around adult eating disorders, which doesn't have the same history. So I think there's something about starting up in a more informal way and as it becomes more uh, larger in terms of money and more complex, sort of building the governance appropriately. So that's, that, that in some ways is a similar lesson to the one we heard about in the last podcast around um, the importance of using relationships as the starting point, using that to actually do something, and then from that building the governance and hopefully building a virtuous circle where the governance then enables you to do more things, deepen your relationships, and then evolve the governance. Uh, Hamza, Clearly, there's going to be a significant range of changes around competition law. And I wanted to get a sense from you around where you think that's going to land, particularly in relation to ensuring decisions are made on a a non-conflicted basis. Thanks, Mike. The provider selection regime consultation closed earlier this month, and there are a huge range of implications when it comes to procuring healthcare services and also in relation to competition law as it applies to the NHS. I think what we're uh, likely to see is more flexibility for NHS decision-making bodies. That's ICSs in the future once they become statutory bodies as anticipated by the white paper, as well as NHS trusts and foundation trusts. Uh, The ability to, rather than immediately go to a competitive procurement, to consider whether or not 
it is appropriate in those circumstances to have any sort of tender process or indeed whether or not it makes sense for the relevant provider's contract to be rolled over or whether or not any other market testing might be required, whether there are other providers or indeed a service change that might necessitate consideration of um, of a new model with, with new providers. So I think we are likely to see an, a number of changes there to that framework, which I think will help the system when it comes to avoiding uh, bureaucratic exercises that, that, that may not be necessary. One of the issues will be around conflicts, Mike, and you mentioned, you mentioned that. And I think we talk about collaboration and integrated care systems and providers and commissioners effectively working much more closely. However, the white paper does talk about retaining the duty to ensure that, there are, that decisions are made on a non-conflicted basis. So where you have um, an ICS NHS body that has representation, for example, from NHS providers as well as on, on the commissioning side, it will be important to ensure that there are appropriate committees or similar that will be able to take decisions on a, on a non-conflicted basis. If we look at provider collaboratives specifically, though, and, and actually how decisions are made at a provider collaborative level, Another enabler from the white paper is is the discussion around um, joint committees being set up. And at the moment, we have a situation where foundation trusts um, have restrictions around their delegation. Particularly, they can only delegate to a, a director or a committee of directors, which when you've got a mixed committee with representation from different organizations can make decision making uh, rather clunky. I think taking away some of the blockers to collaboration will be to allow for that that mixed joint committee to be able to make decisions more efficiently, which I think will will, will really help. It doesn't take away the conflict problem, which I think will will remain um, will remain an issue. But we have seen, you know, over the years we've seen a number of different ways to uh, work through work through conflicts by putting in, in place um, uh, whether it's you know non-disclosure agreements with with particular individuals, whether it's making sure that you have identified and 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 disclosed relevant conflicts and ensure that those those individuals aren't part of any specific decision-making processes when it comes to awarding contracts. There are there are various ways to deal with that, and I think that that will remain a focus in the future. Let's stay with sort of future forecasting for, for a moment and think a little bit more about some of those wider commissioning responsibilities and where they might land. Certainly we know that from the way in which the elective recovery program on the acute side was both incentivized and penalized across a system basis rather than an individual trust basis potentially points to opportunities for devolving say elective commissioning to a provider collaborative as opposed to to, to place. South London Partnership is already in the early stages of doing that in relation to specialised commissioning. And I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit about the journey that you're on there and some of the challenges that you see from blurring those lines between commissioning and providing. We're at very early stages of taking on the uh, formal commissioning for the services that we provide and to date haven't had too many issues with it, but we're very mindful that we should aspire to be the kind of commissioner we would have liked to have been, or to have had under the old arrangements and recognizing that there is that there are two distinct roles in, in, in what we're trying to do. 
One of the aspects that we are very aware of is that as commissioners, we're actually responsible for, for, for the provision of services, not necessarily within the NHS, so private sector providers of some of our services. And it will be interesting to see how we're able to exercise that role, given that we have no legal rights. We can only do things through influencing and, again, through relationships. So those are things that I think will develop over time as we become more established in our role as commissioner. But coming back to your point about commissioning to providers or commissioning to place, one of the things that I'm concerned about, I think, particularly around mental health, because we provide services in Southwest London across five separate boroughs, is if budgets are devolved to place, there is a potential for a huge fragmentation of the kind of mental health services that are provided locally that don't necessarily then dovetail with the secondary services provided through acute services that we provide across South London. So I think there will be a role for mental health trusts to provide leadership to ensure that services commissioned locally do um, both meet professional standards and need and plug into secondary services that are available. So I think there's a, there's a, this is an area of risk that we need to keep our eye on. And thank you. And, and Peter, I know that you, you've already mentioned that there are discussions about where, where commissioning sits in the future. Clearly, your patch is incredibly diverse from deeply rural uh, parts of Sussex through to bustling city of Brighton Hove. Thinking about those challenges, how do we make sure that we commission in a way which reflects the very different communities that are served? So I think values and behaviours are really important. And I think that when we're starting to think about the collaborative with a focus on meaningful outcomes for patients, you know, the, the co-production of services, the, the engagement of partners and patients and carers in the development of pathways is, is really important. I think that that helps you to then understand where there are differences across your geography. I think it's really important that there's a shared understanding of quality and a shared understanding of risk between clinicians and practitioners along the pathway. And that there's some willingness, I think, both to make sure that we've got you know, a really good evaluation framework in terms of where the things where we're testing things, that we're evaluating them properly, and that we need to understand where that might be different in, in different um, geographies. I think that we need to be careful that when we're talking about collaboratives, we're sometimes talking about different forms of integration. So we do need, I think, to make sure that, there, that those services that are require specialist skills can be delivered across a broader geography than place. I think it's fair to say at the same time that where we think about what the patients are really going to notice and where they may really notice the transformation, it's going to be in the primary care networks and it's going to be at a neighbourhood level. So for a mental health trust that's got to deliver very specialist services, it's got to deliver um, integration between physical and mental health, and it's got to make sure it's part of the community transformation and population health management at a neighbourhood level, it is quite important that we can flex and that we are 
making sure that we're flexing relevantly, but that the way in which the investment is managed doesn't actually lead to unhelpful fragmentation and potentially actually an increase in, in cost, which actually would take resources away um, from the patient and, and the carer. Thank you, Peter. Within your collaboratives, I want to get a sense of what the ambition might be for the next two to three years. So, Anne, can I kick off with you? Where, where do you think South London Partnership will be in a couple of years' time, and what will that mean for the people using its services? We're already working, in addition to the provider collaboratives, that the formal provider collaboratives that we have, we are already working jointly uh, across the three trusts on complex care cases for individuals who have not only a serious mental illness, but also other complex health or social care needs. And we're having some really good results there where it's again, it's clinically led, which is really, really important. Um, but we've managed to discharge quite a lot of patients from inpatient facilities back to the community. And I think that must be a direction of travel that we want to go in. We need to get to the point where uh, as many people as possible can stay in the community. So that's our next sort of venture. And again, we are looking at taking on commissioning for some of that. There may be other services uh, that again would make sense to run across the three trusts. As Peter was saying, sometimes services are so specialist that it's just not economic um, to uh, to provide those in individual trusts or in individual boroughs. But I think the really exciting opportunity that's coming out of the new uh, proposals for, for us is to look at whether there are opportunities for provider collaboratives with which involve mental health trusts at place level. And again, as Peter was saying, it's so important to ensure mental health and well-being, to engage with local authorities, social services, housing, and whether there are opportunities, whether it becomes a formal pro provider collaborative, I don't yet know, but an opportunity for us to work together with pooled budgets and joint decision-making to improve the outcomes of people at the other end of the mental illness spectrum, where we can try and keep people out of inpatient facilities. And thank you for that. Peter, it would be great to hear from you about your ambitions in relation to that broader partnership agenda, particularly around uh, housing, employment and so on, and, and, yeah. and how you think that we might be able to move towards a more integrated system in, in the near future. Yeah, I agree with Anne that we've got some real opportunities to make a difference for some of the most vulnerable people in society through the mental health collaboratives and I think we must make sure that we continue to drive those improvements you know and I referenced the work we've been doing around rough sleeping and, and, and homeless people as, as a really important area that can sometimes feel marginalized or excluded. I think if I think about place I think it's really important when we're starting to think about the population's mental health at place and we're starting to think about those people who are already affected by mental illness at place that one of the things in the white paper that I think is very exciting is that role that it talks about for the ICS of supporting economic and social development and I think that there's something really exciting if we can really harness the work that 
mental health trusts already do by having employment advisors in IAT, by having their IPS services, by working with their local housing associations to actually start to think about how we improve the economic and social development of place and hence we improve the population's mental health and we potentially improve their income that could be very exciting and i think you know if we think about the anchor network at place that i think is a very exciting development i think it's really important that we don't see anchor networks as projects they're actually about behaviors and i think if we can align that work around supporting local businesses, supporting more people into employment, supporting people who are affected by mental illness into employment. We know the link between unemployment and mental ill health. That could be a really exciting um, development. I also think that actually by bringing some of the other asset holders in at place, we can also then start to think about actually how do we reuse resource differently. We quite often talk in the NHS about being short of capital, whereas actually, for example, other organisations like housing associations have access to capital. So I think some of that work at place potentially gives us the opportunity to integrate um, in, a, in a different way. Peter, thank you for that. And I think that, that, that's really important to hang on to that idea of the anchor institution, particularly seeing it as a, as a way of behaviour rather than a, than a project. Clearly, the emerging legislation is going to galvanise all of this work on provider collaboratives. I wonder if I could hand across to you, Hamza, for a few final words of wisdom on what you think trust should be considering as they develop their plans for deepening collaboration and any key risks that you'd be cautioning them to avoid. Thanks, Mike. Well, um, I've just jotted down a few thoughts on, on this, um, but there are five five key points that I'll talk to when it comes to putting together collaboration arrangements. One would be articulating the shared purpose and vision, and I think we've, we've talked about that already earlier on, but that's critical so that all of those that are collaborating are clear on that shared, shared purpose and vision. The second is around clarifying the scope, the roles and responsibilities of the different parties. We often see that this can be relatively loose and that in itself can cause consternation and concern around whether a particular party is, is pulling its weight in the collaboration so it's it's really important to ensure that that is clear in any collaboration arrangements that are pulled together the third is around considering how the collaboration the provider collaborative will fit within wider system governance um, where exactly does it fit and what what other particular structures are around it are there is there any potential duplication and how can that be avoided because one of the concerns i think around all of the collaboration arrangements that might crop up across different systems there is a real risk of duplication and indeed um over over complicating an already complicated system the fourth is to ensure that any collaboration arrangements allow for iteration because I think, as Anne has mentioned, you know, there is a point around initially building trust and working through what, what the collaboration might look like and what it might be able to achieve. But from the initial stages of building trust right the way through to potentially sharing financial risk and reward, there is a long journey there. And the final fifth point is really just around keeping it simple. I think with any of these arrangements, whilst you can draft legal documents that cover all sorts of different aspects, it's really important that those are easy to engage with. 
um, whatever form it might take, it's important that you try to keep the arrangements simple and you don't end up having to refer to them on a regular basis, allowing for the collaboration to develop and for that trust to form and ultimately for a good outcome for patients as a result of those collaboration arrangements. Fantastic. Thank you all very much. Our next podcast is going to be on the people agenda with a particular focus around equality, diversity and inclusion. Anne and Peter, I wonder whether there are any points that you'd like to mention in advance of that um, that you'd be keen that the, the next discussion covers. So after the year that we've been through and the, the stark recognition of the disproportionate impact of COVID on uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic communities, I think it behoves all of us to make sure that we don't ever lose sight of the inequalities that come in our society and make sure that we take that forward both in terms of our, our own staff, but also in terms of our patients and our service users. Uh, and one of the things that I'm very aware of in mental health is the disproportionate number of particularly Black African and Black Caribbean men who end up being sectioned uh, in our inpatient services. And that's something that we will continue to address over the next uh, year or so. But equally, we're very alive to the fact that some of our staff have gone through particularly challenging issues over the last year. And some of the stories that come out are quite, quite distressing, and we will need to continue to focus on that um, as, as one of our priorities over the next year or two. Thank you, Anne. And Peter? Thanks, Mike. I mean, we've seen, haven't we, you know, over the last 12 months, the disproportionate impact of COVID on people from the AME communities and LGBTQ plus um, communities. And, you know, hopefully all our organisations have responded to the pressure on and concerns of our BAME staff and our LGBTQ plus staff. I think that we need to make sure that as we start to talk about recovery, we recognise the, just the levels of exhaustion within our organisations, but also that we must continue our efforts to address those equalities in issues as they affect our staff. It's interesting, isn't it, that you know, we as organisations, you know, we're going to be one of the few employers that's still going to have significant levels of vacancy within our different places. And I think there's also something about making sure that, that we're trying to do everything we can within our communities to support them into employment and to support local people into those vacancies as a, as a way of both helping our own organisations to recover, but also helping those communities to recover as well. Thank you. We're coming to the end of the podcast now, and I'd just like to thank Anne, Peter and Hamza for being in conversation today and I think shedding real light on the opportunities and some of the risks of the new white paper in relation to providing collaboration. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mike. Thank you. Thank you.